Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. We are in week eight of our series through the book of James, and Myron Jellison is bringing the message today. He'll be taking us through chapter two, verses 10 through 13, and going a little deeper into what James says about God's law and what it's meant to remind us of. Here's Myron. Well, good morning. How we doing? Good. My name is Myron Jellison. I'm the next gen pastor uh, here at the church and a part of the teaching team here and want to welcome you and just meet you. If I've never uh, got to introduce myself to you, that's who I am and grateful that you're here. And uh, so I got a question for you. Um, How many of you have ever broken the speed limit in your entire life? Okay, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, this one's for you. How many of you have ever told a lie? (laughs) Perfect. Now we've all participated. Well done. So (laughs) I look at the speed limits and all of us break them at some point in time, whether or not it's intentional or unintentional. There is a point in our driving career where we will go above the speed limit that's posted. And we can sit here and and, and go back and forth and debate how stupid it is. And like, if I can drive 90 safely, that like, what's it matter? Okay. But regardless, the law was in place. And yet we all seem to find ourselves violating or breaking that law one way or another. Some of us do it intentionally every single time we drive. Some of us do it unintentionally because we weren't paying attention or the speed limit sign changes on us or whatever. And so here's another thing. Draw up in your mind the last time you were speeding, which was probably 30 minutes ago. And and then you're driving. What happens when you see a police officer when you're driving? What's the first thing you do? Hitch your brakes. Even if you're going the speed limit, right? And you see a police officer, you hit your brakes, check the speed on him, and you go, oh my gosh, is he going to get me? And it's even really stressful when one's tailing you, right? It's like, oh my gosh, he's behind me. I got to be like perfect. You're like two-fisted right here, anxious like crazy, wondering if he's going to flip his lights on and pull you over. Now, draw, draw with me too, is if you're driving, whether or not you're speeding or not, and you hear a siren, what do you do? Probably check your brakes, or hit your brakes, check your speed. Did I run a stop sign? Oh boy, is he coming after me? And so it, 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 it provokes a response inside of us when we hear that siren, regardless if we're breaking the law or not. But when we're breaking the law, speeding, inspections out of date, registration's been a couple months past due, and we know it, and we hear the siren, we go, oh boy. Is he coming for me? But then let's go in a different direction here for a second. Say you're driving down the road and you get in an auto accident and your car rolls over a couple times. You're in a ravine upside down and you're bleeding and you're hurt and you hear the siren. You probably don't think, uh-oh, coming to get me. You probably have a sigh of relief of, oh, they're coming to rescue me. And it's the same siren, but it can provoke two very different responses depending upon our circumstance and what uh, situation we may find ourselves in. And so I share all that. I'll come back to that. But just keep that picture in your mind. The same siren that exists based on our perspective and circumstance can provoke a different response inside of us. And through the book of James, which is the half-brother of Jesus, 
James is teaching and reiterating things that Jesus had taught, that James got to absorb while Jesus was with him. He's just reiterating it to the people who are following Jesus and to everybody in the known world, like this is what it means to follow Jesus. And last week, James talked about favoritism and the dangers of showing partiality or favoritism. And then he's about to launch into, in a few verses after these few verses, into what real faith looks like. But he drops like four verses right in between favoritism and faith that I want to hit pause on and dive in and unpack. We might have been tempted to just fly over it. Okay, whatever. Talks about the law and this crazy thing, but it's really important for us, and I want to dive in. So here's where we go. James chapter 2. We've made it all the way to James 2. We'll be in James forever. Verses 10 through 13, only four verses today. James chapter 2, verse 10. We'll start. Here we go. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So there's this tangent in between favoritism and faith. The book of James is really this fundamentals of what it means to be a Jesus follower, a Christian, a a little Christ, a Christian. And really the book of James is like core trainings. If you read the book of James and do what it says and apply it to your life, I promise you, you'll be living life as Christ intended for us to live. It's the basics, it's the fundamentals. Regardless if you've been following Jesus for six days or 60 years, these are the fundamentals. And James is going to drive us to a point today that James is going to drive us to a point that Jesus iterated over and over and over again. It's almost like you can kind of hear Jesus speaking through James when we read this this passage. And so in between favoritism and faith, he he drops this in here about, hey, you got to keep the whole law. Right? You can't just violate one aspect of the law and say, you know what, well, that's that part of the law is not that big a deal, and the other 99 hypothetical laws are like, I'm keeping all of those, but this one, and James is saying, well, hold on, you don't get the right to choose, which is my first point. God's law reminds us that, number one, we can't pick and choose which laws we like. We can't pick and choose which commands of Jesus, which laws, which expectations God has for his followers. We don't have the right to pick and choose which ones we follow and don't follow, because if you break one law, you have broken the whole law. And you can't go, I like these ones, and I'm keeping all these ones, but this one, my situation, I'm exceptional, or I'm the exception, so I'm good. But the reality is, is the same God of that law is the same God of all the laws inside the kingdom of God. So either you keep all of it, or if you violate any of them, you're guilty of all of them, which is frustrating. Think about it. Because all of us know inside of us, we can never keep all of God's commands. Like we know that God is holy and he's perfect and there's a standard and expectation of us. And if you study scripture, you'll see the expectations and the standards and the commands and the law that that, that Jesus has for us to live our best life. And we know that we can't do it. It's almost impossible. And James is saying, that's the point. (laughs) And that's good news. Because you and I, we cannot go before a judge on a murder charge, and when the judge asks us, hey, how do you plead, we go, hold on, judge. (laughs) I know I killed somebody, but have you seen my driving record? I'm one of the ones who's never sped. Sure didn't. Never had been in an auto accident. I've never burned down a house. 
I've never committed arsonry. I've never, uh, you know, stolen anything. I've never broken any of those laws. But the judge is like, but you murdered somebody. Yeah, but you know what? I've never agreed with the murder laws in this state. I've never agreed with the murder laws. Some people deserve to die. And if you say that before a judge, the judge is going to go, that argument is invalid. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have any weight or water to it. Because you broke the murder law, you are guilty of the murder law, and regardless if you agreed with it or didn't agree with it, you violated it. And there's there's consequences for it. So we can't go around picking and choosing and saying, God, I'm pretty good in 99% of my life. But there's this one thing. And James says, if it's one thing, you've broken the entire law. And I know the speed limit. Let's go back to the speed limit for a minute. You might think it's a stupid law. You might think it doesn't apply to you. But the reality is, is you can still get pulled over. And when you get pulled over, if you go, police officer, I don't agree with the speed limit law. He's going to go, I don't really care. <laughs> Here's your ticket. Have a nice day. Or if you're lucky, you might get a warning. But it's, and that's a man-made law. But then we roll up to God's kind of moral law and God's absolute truth law of all of society and humanity because he made the world. He made you and I. He knows how humanity is supposed to live life the best way. And, and so that's the law that we're talking about. It's not a bunch of reprimands. It's not a bunch of things that hinder us and just punish us. It's really to bring us life and life to the full. Like this is how life is best to be experienced. And yet when we violate any aspect of it, we're guilty of the entire law and we are, we're guilty. And James wants to remind us, stop picking and choosing. Stop picking and choosing. And realize that we all fall short. Because you guys remember the royal law we talked about earlier in James? It was this, right? He said the royal law was love God and love others as yourself. If that's the royal law, and Jesus says the two greatest commandments is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those, outside of that, you know, everything is summed up in these two. Love God and love others. And, and, and before James wants, and James wants us to get there. He wants us to, to understand that and really live that on love God and love others. Before we get there, we got to realize that we are incapable of doing that outside of God's love first. Like we have to receive his love unconditionally. We have to be in relationship with him so we can then know what he's calling us to and deal with our sin, even though we are guilty, but he made a way, and then we can love God and love others. We all fall short because there's two types of people in this world. There's imperfect people, and then there's Jesus, and you ain't Jesus. All of us are plagued by sin. Whether or not you want to quantify it as, oh, I just lied, they murdered, I'm not as bad. In God's eyes, all sin separates. All sin deserves punishment of eternal separation from God because he's holy, he's perfect. And he cannot be in relationship with anyone who has any sin still defining their life. Regardless of we want to say it's big or little, none of us are perfect. The law isn't a bunch of reprimands. But the law highlights our depravity. Think about this. The the Bible talks about this. God didn't give us the law to make us drive around all scared all the time, thinking that we're going to break a rule. He gave us the law to say, you guys are sinful. And these laws highlight your separation from me, your brokenness, how, 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 how short you fall from the glory of God. That's what the law is there to exist. It exists for that purpose, not to reprimand and punish us. But the reality of law is that there are consequences and punishments. 
And he's a just judge. He's perfect in his justice. Which brings my second point, that God's law reminds us that this is we're all guilty, but we've been offered mercy. We're all guilty, but there is mercy that God has offered us. And that's what James is driving us to in these next few verses of God's mercy. We're all guilty. We, we're guilty in how we love others and how we show favoritism. He just talked about that. We're guilty of how we don't measure up because we break one part of the law. And he's driving us to this point that no one can stand before a holy God and make a case that they deserve to be in heaven. Nobody can make a case. Going, you know what, God? I'm pretty good. And he goes, but you broke one part of my law. And therefore, there is something that needs to happen. There's a punishment. There's a consequence. And there's something that needs to be done. And we realize as we study God's word and live life, <laughs> we've drifted in one way, shape, or form from God's best. Living in an act of rebellion against what God says is right and true and best for our lives. But the beauty of this, and here's the main point, is we've been offered mercy that we don't deserve. Because even though the sentence is guilty for every single one of us, there's a God, a just judge, who let the penalty be paid on one person, his own flesh and blood, his son Jesus, as payment for your sin once and for all. And so there is consequences, but it's on Jesus. If you follow Jesus, all of that's paid with Christ on the cross. And you can walk in freedom. This is what it says in verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. I want you to underline the word freedom. A lot of times we think about laws as restrictive, don't we? I can't go 90. I can't, you know, get revenge on that person for what they did to me. Or I can't do this because there's a law that is man-made in this life that is restrictive. But this, if we speak and act in accordance as being judged by the law that gives freedom. I love that. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't know if you're like me, but when I grew up in church and was coming up through church as a youngster, I had this perspective that the Bible was a, a book of rules and basically just a book of rules of do's and don'ts. And there wasn't a lot of context and explanation of the why behind it. It was like, hey, do's and don'ts, just do it. That's what it means to follow God and, and be a Christian, a bunch of do's and don'ts. And that's just the way that it is. Page after page, column after column, verse after verse, do's and don'ts in a book of rules. But when you actually read the Bible for yourself, you realize it's not a rule book at all. It's a, it's a book about relationship of how God loves us so much. And he made us in his image. And he has a life that is best lived and he knows how to do it. And that's what you see. And there, it's guidance. It's, it, it's a law that brings freedom. It's commands that bring life and life to the full. Because I always saw the Bible as a restriction on my life, not my ticket to freedom until I read it for myself and really let the Holy Spirit change my heart and my perspective on the Word of God, on the law of God. Because God's not the police officer in the sky patrolling, trying to punish you for what you do in this life. It's kind of like the siren. He's not in the police car trying to give you a ticket for all the wrong that you do. He's in the ambulance when you screw up and need saving. He's there to rescue you. And if you don't have that perspective, when you hear the sight, when you hear God, when you hear church, you hear the Bible, you hear the law, and you think it's the police officer kind of God, 
Man, there's a, a negative response that we have. But when we think about the rescuer, savior, redeemer, Christ crucified on the cross as payment for all of my sin, no matter what I do, when I screw up, I know his grace and mercy will save me and sustain me. So what kind of perspective do you have on God? Is it the police officer in the sky bringing judgment and justice and vengeance on you when you screw up? Or is it the ultimate savior, rescuer, redeemer of your soul? No matter what you do, there's grace and there's mercy for your life. Same siren, two different responses. What's your view on God? And if it was like me, I had the police officer God for a while in my life. And so I really understood what the law was there for, what the word of God is there for. It's my ticket to freedom. And I think about the things that we've done in our life, the ways that we've messed up and the sins that we've had and how we've drifted at time to time, if you put your faith in Jesus and begin to deal with your sin and repent of your sin and let, G let the payment on that cross be enough for your sin, all of the things that you've ever done in your life just become a distant memory of who you used to be, not who you are. They have no definition over your existence now. It'll be stories that you tell with your college buddies one day. You look back, man, what stupidity we did. And I'm grateful that God rescued me from that. Man, all, all the, and the, you might sit around at family reunions and think about all the stupidity and crazy things that happened that you chose to do in your life. Those are all distant memories now. Because God has saved you, redeemed you, and restored you, and made you a new creation in Christ. And here's the thing about following Jesus. When you see this law as a law that brings freedom, is following Jesus makes your life better and it makes you better at life. It makes your life better, 100%. And then also, as you follow Christ and understand his law and how life is best to be lived, you become better at life. Like in your marriage, if you're bickering with each other and always frustrated and angry at each other and you can't see eye to eye and there's you know, differentiating opinions on finances and you're not executing your marriage in a biblical way, it's not going to be a great marriage. But with Jesus at the center of it, oh my gosh, that marriage can be incredibly beautiful and an absolute gift to you in this life. Your career, your workplace, your, your, uh, your small business, wherever you find yourself for employment or your career path, if you execute it with integrity and good work ethic and do it all for the glory of God, I promise you, it will go better for you. You'll get better at life. Your finances, your priorities, every relationship that exists in your life will go better if you do it God's way, inside the law, following Jesus, guided by the Holy Spirit, I promise you. I'm living proof. There are things that are distant memory in my past, and I am so grateful they are distant memory in my past, that the addiction that I had is no longer a thing that defines me. The way I viewed the world and people and interacted with people and was so prideful and arrogant, that is the old Myron. And some people might still think of me as the old Myron, but I promise you I'm not that Myron anymore. And my life is incredibly blessed, and I'm getting better at life every single day as I pursue Christ, and that's available for you too. Stop picking and choosing <laughs> what areas and, and what sins and realize that we're all guilty of the entire law but yet there's mercy available to us every single day, the Bible says. His mercies are new. His grace is new every single day, sufficient for you. Which leads me to my third point. 
God's law reminds us that one day we will face the judge. One day we will be held accountable, Christians and non-Christians, we will be held accountable to everything that we say and do. That's why James says, speak and act according to you being judged by the law that brings freedom. There is a law, there is a standard, there's an expectation that we all fall short of, but we will still be held accountable one day when we stand before the judge. And some Christians want to go, no, Myron, we won't be because Christ paid for all of that. I'm exempt from the judgment. I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say that. Yes, you, 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 you don't have a guilty verdict on your eternal separation from God. That's been dealt with and taken care of with Jesus. But you are still called to steward your life in a way that exemplifies the gospel and displays Christ every single day according to the law that he gives us. And we will stand before the judge, the just judge, one day, and we'll be held accountable for everything we've said and everything that we have done. You won't be condemned. You won't be found guilty and, and punished eternally separated from God. That's dealt with. That's the gospel. That's the good news with Jesus. But everything down here will count for something in eternity. And we're held accountable to it. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful when we stand before God one day in, in that judgment, if we want mercy when we're being judged, we have to give the mercy. Do you see that? Can we throw that back up? Can we throw verse 13 back up real quick, 12 and 13? Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. If you haven't been merciful to other people in this life, we can't expect in our time of judgment that God will be merciful on us. It's like we have, we have some skin in the game in this aspect. Like, we can't pick and choose. We have some skin in the game to the level of mercy that we want to be shown to us when we stand before the just judge one day. Because mercy triumphs over judgment all day, every day. So let me remind you, James, let me remind you about that day. And if you want to be shown mercy on that day, show mercy now. Because not being merciful now means there's not going to be as much mercy in your judgment later. And it goes back to the royal law. Right? Love others as you would love yourself. And we love to have mercy extended to us when we screw up, don't we? And so to love somebody else would be to give them that same mercy that we would want to receive when they screw up against us. And I know this is hard and this is frustrating, but think about it. If you are claiming to have received the mercy that God has for all of your sin, because if you've done one sin, you've broken the entire law of God. And if you receive the mercy that God has on you, James is saying you got to extend it. Jesus said this too. You know, you know, being a follower of Jesus, you have to extend mercy. You have to extend forgiveness. It's not an optional response for a Christ follower. It is an obligation that we have. If you claim to receive his mercy and forgiveness for your rap sheet of sin, for your lifetime of sin, but yet when somebody violates against you or does something against you and you withhold that, it's like, that's hypocritical. Because if he, mercy for your sin, he's got mercy for their sin. And if we're to love God and love others and we want mercy extended to us, then we have to extend mercy to others. And if you want freedom, this is the law that brings freedom. And I know this is hard. But over and over again, Jesus taught this. You must show mercy. You must show forgiveness. And I know that we don't like that. I know that's hard. Because Jesus even correlates this when he talks about this. Jesus correlates this to the, our own forgiveness. 
To the measure that we forgive, we, that measure will be coming back to us. To the measure that we judge, that's the measure that will be being judged towards us. We have skin in the game in this aspect. And then Jesus even calls into question our, our salvation almost. Because he's like, hey, if you're unwilling to forgive, then so will my Father in heaven towards you. It's like, hold on a second. So you're telling me that my salvation might be in question if I'm unwilling to forgive somebody who has offended me? And Jesus kind of paints it out and goes, seems that way. And we don't like that. Because the reality is, is I just want to be good with God (laughs) and have my sin dealt with and not go to hell and go to heaven, but not have to deal with people any differently. I just want to be good with God and get to heaven and deal with my sin, but I don't want it to have to actually change the way that I deal and interact with people. If I'm honest, that's my flesh. It might be your flesh too. But Jesus ties these two together. He says, hey, it's more tied together than you think. Because how you love God determines how you love people. And if you really love God, then you will love people. And what loving people looks like is extending the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God that you have received if you are a follower of Jesus. And you got to freely give it. And you might think, Myron, there are some people who have done the unthinkable to me. (laughs) You're right. Myron, you don't know how they've treated me or treated my children or what they've done to me or the horrific accident that has happened. So, Myron, how do I really deal with those people in this life? Because it's easy to forgive the person who cuts you off on the road or spills that soda in your lap at the dinner table or gets the couch dirty or wears their shoes in the house. Like it's easy to forgive those people on those minute things that we have in our daily life. But when it comes to the egregious, unthinkable, horrific, how, Myron? Seems impossible. And you're right. But if you want freedom, you can't pick and choose. You got to obey Christ. And I'm going to read a story that Jesus taught to to reiterate this point of what it looks like to show mercy and grant forgiveness. And so he's having a conversation with his disciples and he's talking about the brothers and sisters, those who are Christians. This is what this is what he says. Hey, if your brother sins against you, you go to them directly. Go to them directly. Try to solve your grievance between the two directly. And if you can do that, great, amazing, awesome. If you can't, they're not willing to repent. They're going to continue to live in that sin. And there's still that grievance. Now you go to a couple other people who are respected, unbiased Christian individuals who can mediate the situation for you. And if they still don't repent and you don't, you know, uh, rectify the situation, then you can bring it to the entire church. And if they're still unwilling and living in unrepented sin, you can kind of treat them as non-believers. So there was this conflict resolution protocol that Jesus was teaching his followers in Matthew, the Matthew 18. And then Peter, he hears all of this. And Peter, as Peter does, he asks the question that we're probably all thinking that want to ask, but don't have the courage to ask it. Peter don't care. He just asks it. He's like, okay, Jesus, but exactly who and how many times do we have to do this protocol? Because there's some people who are like, oh, it's so simple. And I go to them. Great. We solve it. No big deal. But like how many times if I'm Peter and John's over here and John sins against me, we solve it. Great. One time. All right. He does it again. We solve it two times. Okay. He solves it three times. What if John keeps doing it and we keep solving it? Is there eventually a limit, Jesus, where I can say, I'm done with you, John? No more. And Jesus launches into a story. Peter says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? or sinister who sins against me. Up to seven times. 
Basically, I think Peter's saying, hey, hey, Jesus, how stupid do you have to be to let somebody keep taking advantage of you? Like, how naive and stupid is this mercy forgiveness thing to where someone's just walking all over you? Seven times? Because the rabbis back in that day had a standard of three times. And three came from the Old Testament to where God, with the pagan nations or people who would live in rebellion against him, they would sin against God and God would show mercy once. God would show mercy twice. God would show mercy three times. And on the fourth time, God would bring his judgment to those people after they've had ample warning after three times. So the rabbis kind of adopted that in their teaching in, modern, or in, the, in the first century. First century. And so Peter's like, I know the rabbis do three. I'm going to double it, add one. I'm going to throw out seven, Jesus. How's that sound? And Jesus comes back and says, nope, not seven, but 77 times or 70 times seven, some of the translations say. And I don't think Jesus is saying, Peter, you were close. Let's just multiply it by 10. And really, I don't think Jesus is saying there is a finite amount <laughs> Like, no one's keeping a tally mark of saying, that brother-in-law, 65 times, I dare you, keep going. <laughs> he said, 76, babe, I can't wait. Your brother, as soon as he hits 77, we're done. Vengeance, justice, I'm tired of this. Jesus isn't saying there is a finite number. He's making a point. He's being hyperbolic. He's saying, hey, it's outrageous. Like, we constantly, constantly, over and over again, forgive them. And then he launches into a parable. I think he just captured the audience's attention with a ridiculous 77-time example. And he launches into a parable, which is a story to illustrate a point. And this is a parable that we've probably heard if you followed Jesus or read the Bible, but it always hits home. This one hits me in the gut every single time. And this is probably a parable that we need to study over and over and over again because this is one of the hardest principles, I think, to adopt into our life. Here's the parable, verse 23 of Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the settlement. And a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold, maybe your translation, but 10,000 talents. Talents is a unit of measure for currency. He started with ridiculousness. He started with an amount that is so like unfathomable. It would have been funny. I feel like the crowd would have heard Jesus say 10,000 talents. They'd be like, what? They're chattering. Did, he re- Did I hear him right? Did he really say 10,000 bags of gold? That is insane. It's an enormous amount. It's an unfathomable amount to his audience. Now, we don't deal in talents, so let me break this down. I'm going to give us some context. There was a Roman historian named um, Josephus, not a Bible scholar, but a Roman historian, and he wrote about the, the six provinces of Palestine, which would have been the area that the Roman government occupied at this time in which Jesus would have been teaching. So six provinces in this area, in that region, he wrote and, 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 and preserved for us a single-year tax revenue for the Roman Empire in this region would have been 800 talents. And so the audience hears that, they go, that's a lot of money, 800, that's the taxes that Uncle Sam's taken from us, it's a lot. And he goes, it's 12 and a half times that. And they go, that is unfathomable, it's massive. So when Jesus says the servant owed him 10,000 talents, it's funny, <laughs> it's outrageous. 
Let's go modern day for a second. It might not quite re- resonate to us just yet. Let me just modern day it for us. So let's, let's pretend there's a business owner, a franchise owner who has a boss and that franchise owner's in super big debt. So he goes to the franchise owner and he's like, hey, like it's time for you to pay back your debt. And they look at the ledger and what he owes him. And he goes, you owe me 10 times the national debt. A couple of you get that because you know the amount of the national debt. Like, it's insane. I don't even know if we're keeping track anymore. Like, quinzillions? I don't even know. It's 32 trillion. And so when I say 10 times the national debt, it's like, I can't even fathom how many zeros that is. That is unfathomable. It's outrageous. He's never going to be able to pay that back. And Jesus is going, that's the point I'm trying to make. It's so big, it's laughable, it's witty. Because the 2022 tax revenue for the United States of America was $4.9 trillion. So if the debt was eight, or, or if the tax revenue for Palestine was 800 bags of gold at a 12 and a half time multiplier to the 10,000 bags, I know math, I'm losing you, I was a math guy, stay with me. Here's the amount that he's really painting in proportion to his audience. trillion dollars worth of debt would be what I would say to you if I was telling you the parable today. It's insane. It's unfathomable. He's making a point. He's got his audience's attention. Like, where are you going with this, Jesus? Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, obviously, (laughs) the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. The crowd probably starts shaking their head, man, like this ain't going to work. You realize that selling people into slavery is not going to amount to 61 million or 61 trillion. You realize that, dude, it's not going to happen. Even if this guy had a huge wealth of property and animals and livestock, selling all of that and then even selling his family, even if he had like 30 kids, it's about 500 denarii for a, uh, which is a silver coin for a slave. It's not even going to come close to paying off his debt if he gets sold into slavery. It's so big. And knowing that he has no option, this servant, he falls on his knees in verse 26. At this time, he falls on his knees before him and says, be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The dude's delusional. He's not paying back this amount of debt. It's impossible because no single person can actually amass or accumulate this amount of debt in their lifetime. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him because he begged. He canceled the debt and let him go. The audience is like, what? Curveball right here. Servant comes in. He's guilty of this massive debt. He'll never be able to pay it. He should be going into slavery. That would, be the, that would be justice in that day and age. He drops to his knees. He begs for mercy. And the master goes, I'll cancel it. And not just void the debt payment that he owes him, but really like you're not going in slavery. Go back to your wife and kids. Go back to your homestead. Go back and live your life. He's got freedom now. The audience is like, why would this ever happen? But the reality is, is the king, the master, he has the right to do so because it's his stuff. It's his money. It was his resources. So he has the right to cancel all of it. So the crowd's probably listening to Jesus. Okay, sure. What's the point here? And when the servant went out, after just having his debt canceled of $62 trillion worth in our modern day context, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. 
His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Deja vu? Happened two minutes earlier. Same statement, word for word of what he just got, or what he said when he was needing to be forgiven and his servants doing the same exact thing to him. And you would think he would extend the cancellation that he just received, but he doesn't. He refused. And instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Word for word, deja vu, same line. And he's choking this guy out over 100 silver coins. A silver coin is also called a denarii, and an average day's wage in this, in this, modern, or in this, in this day and age in, in that context would have been about one silver coin a day. So let's transfer that to modern day. I took the national average of hourly wage, roughly 100 days at the national average would be about $22,000. He was forgiven a quantity of 62 trillion in the hyperbole that Jesus painted. And he's choking somebody out over $22,000 of a debt. It pales in comparison to what he was forgiven, to what he is not willing to forgive his servant. It's a 600,000 to one ratio. So if, it, if the first servant's debt was 6 million, that was canceled. He's choking him out over a Chick-fil-A meal worth $10. That's the ratio here. It's incredible. And Jesus is painting this picture. The crowd's getting angry. The crowd's like, what an injustice. How could he, when he's been forgiven, not forgive someone that's so minuscule in comparison to what he has been forgiven? And we don't like this kind of behavior, do we? And then Jesus kind of turns it on the crowd. He says, but this is kind of how you treat each other. So when the other servants had heard what had happened, they were outraged. They saw the injustice. They said, hey, and they went to the master and they told the master what had happened. And the master called in that servant and said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. He's not going to be able to pay back what he owed. He's in eternal torture now. Calling him a wicked servant. Man, you, you, you took the forgiveness that I gave you. You took the debt cancellation that I offered you. But yet you were unwilling to actually go and give it. So now you come back to me. And now you're worse off in eternal, eternal torture than you would have been off just in slavery. The judgment's even more severe now, but when he was unwilling to extend the mercy and forgiveness that he was forgiven, then he looks at the crowd, and this is what he wants us to understand today in verse 35. He hits us in the gut. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This doesn't feel good. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's how he started the parable. This is what it looks like to be in God's family, in the kingdom of God where he's got rule and reign and sovereignty, where his law is the authority. This is what it looks like. And at the heart of God, this is what it is. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not that we have to do what God says out of obligation, but out of a response of gratitude for the debt that he's canceled on our behalf. <laughs> We cancel other people's debts. It's what we do. It's what we should do. I know it's hard because if we've truly been forgiven, 
If we truly receive the mercy and grace that's been shown to us for our rap sheet, our lifetime of sin, our debt that is so big that has separated us from God, if, that, if Jesus on the cross was cancellation for that debt and yet we hold on to unforgiveness for something done to us, what hypocrisy it exists in our life. Because there's a day that we'll be held accountable to every single thing that we say and do. And Jesus wants us to get this right. He wants us to have freedom in this life. So here's how we look to the judgment day. There'll be a day when we're held accountable. And the Bible is beautiful because it gives us all the answers to the judgment day. There should not be anything that we are surprised of when we get to that one day of going, yeah, you violated this. Well, I didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? I had the word of God. I had church every single Sunday. You could study this. You should know. You should never be surprised of God's law and the expectation of what it means to follow Jesus. It's got all the answers. We should never be surprised because all of it's been laid out for us. And when it comes to this area of forgiveness and unforgiveness and having mercy in our judgment one day, we have to extend mercy. And to the degree that we extend it is the degree that we'll be held accountable to it. So my question to you, who is it in your life that you need to forgive? Who is in your life that you need to show mercy to? Here's a harder question to answer. Who is it in your life that doesn't deserve your forgiveness that you need to extend it anyway? Not the person who spilled that in your lap or ruined your carpet or whatever. Bumped into your car. Not that big a deal. But who's the person who's done the unthinkable, the horrific, the egregious, that you can't let go, that takes up all of your headspace and defines where you go? You can't even walk in the same room because they're there or their name gets said and it brings angst inside of you that just ruins your whole entire day. Who is that person? that might be living a lifestyle that is so offensive and hurtful to you and that they're unwilling to repent of it. And Peter's like, seven times? Can we do seven? He's like, 77. Infinite amount of times. Just keep extending it even though they don't deserve it. Who's that person for you? And I know that's hard. But our Heavenly Father will treat us. That's how he deals with us. If we are unwilling to forgive from our heart, that's our homework. Who is it? I got four things real quick of how we can look forward to our judgment day. We got the cheat sheet. We got the Bible. Here's number one. It starts with a look in the mirror. Here's how you do this. It starts with a look in the mirror. Look at what's been forgiven for you. I'm not talking about the second chance that Jesus gives us in this one area of our life. I'm not talking about the hundredth chance when I keep screwing up and I know what I ought not to do and I do it anyway. The Apostle Paul talks about that and I'm sure that we struggle. There's things in our life that we keep tripping over and God's mercy and grace is sufficient for all of those. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the thing that is worth a 10 times the national debt rebellion against God that you have in your life. What is it? And for most of us, it's just our sin nature that exists in our lives. It's where we all know we all fall short of God's law and God's best and God's standard. And here's the thing. Until you understand the magnitude of the debt that God has paid on your behalf through Jesus, you'll never receive the gospel. 
You'll never receive the good news, the substitution for your life, until you realize the magnitude of the mess that your life is in comparison to God's perfect standard. Because we think we're good people. We think that, okay, you know, I got this one thing, I'm struggling. The rest of them, I'm great. But until you realize even one small iota, you break all of it. You're never going to receive the gospel over your life, the grace of God over your life. And so what is it for you that you got to realize, look in the mirror and realize what God has forgiven you of through Christ on the cross that you never deserved and you could never do anything to deserve it, but it's available to you. All you got to do is ask. And if you've made that step of faith, man, we can't withhold it to other people regardless of what they've done. And I know that's hard. But it starts with you. Look in the mirror and realize what you've been forgiven. I want to go to Matthew 7 real quick. Jesus talks about this. Forgive and it will be forgiven to you. To the measure that you use, it's coming back on you. We got skin in the game here. We do. And so whatever measure we use, so be generous with forgiveness. If you want generous forgiveness on you, give generous forgiveness. That's how your Heavenly Father will treat you. And then it talks about, in Matthew 7, it goes on a little bit. It talks about, hey, before you try to take the plank or the speck out of somebody else's eye, take the plank out of your own eye. Before you ever try to address somebody else's sin against you or their sin in general, or like, hey, that's not, that's like outside of God's best. Before you ever try to do that, look in the mirror at your own life and realize where you have sin. That is a log in comparison to their speck. And do you see your sin, your struggle as a magnitude that you can never repay and that you constantly got to look in the mirror and see where you're falling short, repent, invite God, let the Holy Spirit continually work that out in your life so you can truly love people and extend forgiveness and mercy to them. Look in the mirror. And the second thing we got to do is this. Focus on what was done for us, not to us. Or I say this way too. Focus on what was done for you, not to you. Do you realize what was done for you on your behalf? Do you realize the rap sheet of sin that separated you from God that was so big of a 10 times the national debt size that you could never pay back and never earn your way to God and he freely did it for you? Would you focus on that instead of how people have hurt you and how they violated you and how they've abandoned you and how they've hurt you? And how they've wounded you in such deep ways. Would you stop focusing on that and focus on what's been done for you, not to you? Because when you do that and you realize that God's mercy and grace and forgiveness was good for you, you'll begin to have empathy for the people who have sinned against you and go, God's mercy and grace and forgiveness is good for them too. And if he's good to give it to me, I got to be good to give it to them. And hopes that God's mercy and grace and forgiveness will get their life too. And what they have done will become a distant memory of the past of who they used to be. And their eternity will be in heaven with God too. Because here's the thing. Some of us are so trapped by what's been done to us. How he abandoned us. How she cheated on us or me and my family. How they violated him or her at such young ages in horrific ways how he was intoxicated behind the wheel and did this, how they keep saying and doing and repeating these same things that just bring hurt and pain in my life. In spite of all of that, 
Focus on what was done for you, and that'll help you extend it to others. And don't let it be the identity that robs you of life and life to the full. The third thing is this. Give mercy, not justice, and let God be God. Let our default be mercy and not justice, and let God be God. God is the just judge. His justice is perfect. Ours is imperfect. Like if we try to seek out revenge and, and repayment for what was done to us, that's a sin. Like we're just, we're trying to make a sin, correct a sin. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's going to bring more pain, more turmoil, and, and more injustice by us trying to take justice into our own hands. Let God, the perfect just judge, deal with it. And here's, here's the reality. <laughs> the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. No one gets away with anything in this life. And there's two places that all sin, all evil, the horrific and the, and the egregious acts that happen in this life, there's two places that they're paid for, the justice system of God. One, it's on the cross with Christ, is payment, so that we could be made right in God's eyes. Or the second is in hell. And so the reality is, is our form of justice is imperfect, and it's really an, it's really an injustice. And so we got to let God be God, and he paid for it on the cross, and if they accept that for the forgiveness of their sins, it's done, it's paid for. And if they don't, and they continue to live in rebellion and not repenting of that, then there's consequences in hell that justice will be paid. And that's the perfect system that God has that we can live in and be free. That's the law that gives freedom if we just let God be God. And I know the horrific things that have happened, and I'm not trying to belittle and say that by you, you know, forgiving, they get away with it. I'm not saying that. By you extending mercy that they don't deserve, that there's no consequences and, you know, they're just going to keep doing it. I'm not saying that. I got a whole message. Go on YouTube and look it up. Forgiveness is a big deal. And I got a message on this parable that unpacks what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not that will help you if you're stuck in that place. I don't have time to go there today. But there's a justice system that God has. Let God do it. Give mercy, not your own revenge. And the final thing is this. Forgive like your life depends on it. Forgive like your life depends on it. In Romans uh, 12, 18, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. It takes effort on our part to live at peace with our family, our in-laws, the people who have done the unthinkable. It's really hard to live in peace, but as much as it takes on your side, as much as it depends on you, live at peace. And you'll never live at peace if you don't forgive. Your life will have disruption, dysfunction, hurt, anxiety, fear. It'll control you to a certain degree, and you got to forgive like your life and your happiness and your joy depends on it because it does. And I know it's hard to do that. And you don't have to do it alone. Life groups start in two weeks. Get a group of people who love Jesus and love you and will help you walk through that, extending grace and forgiveness to those who don't deserve it from you. If you need help today, find the prayer booths in the back. Uh, we got Stevens Ministries. We can ministers we can connect you with to walk through whatever's happened to you and help you navigate it. Forgive like your life depends on it. You know, Jesus taught us to pray in a way in which reiterates this point that it's critical and necessary. You guys familiar with the Lord's Prayer? 
A lot of us can probably recite the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know about you, but when I pray, and Jesus, Jesus is like, this is a model for prayer. Not that we have to recite it verbatim. It's good to do so. But he says, this is a model of prayer. When you pray, pray in this way. And if I'm real with you, I honestly don't pray in this way all the time. Because what does it say about sin? It says, hey, God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. God, forgive me as I have forgiven those. Do you pray that way? Oftentimes I pray, God, forgive me. Your mercy and grace is beautiful for me, for what I've done. I'm so sorry. But for them, get them, sick them. <laughs> Justice, they don't deserve it. I deserve it. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Lord. Yes. But not them. Because what I've done, it's not that bad. But them? And Jesus says, hey, pray in this way. As you forgive others, God will forgive you. There's a correlation here. And then the hardest part about all of this is it seems that Jesus calls into our salvation of whether or not we are a follower of Christ if we cannot forgive. If we choose not to forgive, maybe we haven't received the forgiveness of Christ. I know that's hard to think about. Because there's been some really horrific things done to you, and I know that. But you have to understand that the debt that you owed God, you would never be able to pay. And what someone has done to you pales in the comparison to the debt that we have before a holy God. And the lengths that he went to, his own son, dying on the cross, is that payment so your debt is canceled. You walk out of the master's chambers where you were guilty, and he has the right to do so, cancels all of it, $62 trillion worth. And we have the audacity and the pride and the ego to choke out somebody else in this life over $10. It's crazy for us to do that. And I know it's hard. And this law exists to give us freedom. I want you to live in freedom. I want you to live life the best way that life is to be lived, and only God knows how to do that. Mercy and forgiveness is not an optional response for those who have received his. It's a mandate. And will we give it unconditionally? So Father God, would you please comfort those who have been hurt in traumatic ways right now? The ones who've been abandoned by loved ones, those who've been cheated on, those who have had families ripped apart, those who have lost loved ones, those who have had the unthinkable happen to them. Would you comfort their heart and soul right now, Lord God? Holy Spirit, comfort them in their time as they navigate this and, and the implications. If they received your forgiveness, they got to give it. And what that's going to look like is going to be unique to them. So would you guide them? Would you guide them? Father, would you guide all of us? Would you inspire all of us? Would you give us the courage and boldness to not just be hearers of this word of extending forgiveness, but actual doers? And in that process, we can live free, unhindered, un unrestricted with the memories and the thoughts and the scenes in our heads over and over again. But God, it would just become a distant past in our story and not a defining moment of who we are, made new in Christ Jesus. Help us to forgive constantly, without hesitation, so that we can live inside the will of God and live our best life. 
So Holy Spirit, come as we worship and prompt our hearts to who is it? Father, would you highlight who is it? What is it? And show us the way to live in freedom. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.